0: Good morning, Bethel. Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Good, man. I'm so glad to see all of you today. We are starting a new series, as you see up on the screen, the Supreme Life. Now, let me ask, what is it that we all think about the most? What do we think about the most? Ah, someone said food. What else do we think about? Money? Video, work. video games? Work? My bad. (laughs) All right, so all of these things have a common thread. We think about me, myself, and I more than we think about anything else, don't we? We wake up, the first thing we think about is, what am I going to eat? How tired am I? Oh, I need to take a shower. It's always, we are always the first thing that we think about. It's just natural. And we're going to look at today, I, I like going through one of the smaller books of the Bible at least a couple of times a year, um, to kind of walk through and look at what that book, or in this case it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. What did the author intend for that the hearers of this church, and how is it that it applies to us today? And we're going to see that the church at Colossae sounds a lot alike. Our, our culture that we're living in in this 21st century. You know, I, I chose Colossians because Paul's point in this short letter is that it's not about me and it's not about you. Now, Jesus has done a lot of things for us. Jesus has done more things for us than anyone else. All of the other people in our lives combined, but it's still not about us. So we'll be in Colossians chapter 1 today, but before we get there, um, you know, this is where we're going to be for the the next few weeks. We'll be walking through this book of Colossians, and it's a great letter, and let me kind of give you just a little bit of the highlights of what's happening in Paul's life, in the life of this church, to kind of lay the groundwork for why he's going to say the things that he says in this letter to the church at Colossae. First, we know that it was written during one of Paul's many, many imprisonments. Paul would go into these cities. He would preach the gospel. They did not like the message. They would throw him in jail for preaching the gospel. And there he wrote what was called the prison epistles. This is one of those where he wrote these letters from a jail jail cell. And Paul was jailed for extensive periods of time for the sole reason of refusing to stop telling people about a risen Savior named Jesus Christ. That was the only reason why he was thrown into prison. Another thing about this letter is Paul had never met this church. Paul did not plant this church. This church was planted by one of his his buddies named Epaphras, who had shared with Paul some of the things about the church that concerned Paul. And so Paul said, I'm going to write this letter to the church at Colossae to share with them my concerns of the things that I'm hearing about what's going on in the church. And another thing about Colossians is Paul is very straightforward in this letter, and he seems to have really two primary concerns in his mind, and we're going to look at these over the next few weeks. And he's he's concerned because the believers in the church at Colossae seem to have been influenced by the culture around them in a way that warped their understanding of God. They had a warped view of God. Now, we just spent five weeks looking at who God is in Exodus by God telling us about himself. So we know, we understand, hopefully, after these five weeks, who the God is that we serve. The church at Colossae had this warped understanding of God. He's also addressing their concern about why he's always in prison. They're concerned about why, what's, what's, why is Paul always in prison, a messenger of God? Why is he going through this suffering? He's going to kind of answer that question for them, This the I- idea of suffering for doing God's work. It's something that people kind of struggle with. So Paul writes this letter, first to correct their view of God, and second to explain to them why he was willing to suffer and sacrifice for the gospel and why they should be willing to make that same sacrifice. So the city of Colossae, it, it really is a fascinating place. It was a prosperous city tucked in to a a valley in the middle of modern-day Turkey. It was a part of the Roman Empire, and at this point in the Roman Empire, during the first century of the Roman Empire, the way the Romans viewed religion was they had two basic guidelines. You can worship any god that you want. The Roman Empire had many gods, and this is the way the Roman Empire was, really kind of from its founding and until Constantine became emperor in the third century, and he established Christianity as the religion of the the roman empire but for the first six seven eight hundred years of the roman empire this is their their guidelines you can worship any god that you want the only thing is number two don't say your god is the only god because that might lead to conflict or you thinking that you should be in charge because you serve the right god and rome is the ultimate authority if your god is the right god or the only god, then that's going to conflict with Rome. And Rome is the ultimate authority. So as with many Roman cities of the day, Colossae was filled with temples and shrines to all kinds of gods. And the general mood was, find the god that works for you. So they would have you know, their sun god and there whatever god that they had that they would worship there were hundreds or maybe even thousands of them and they would be, you know, they would essentially have the idea of feel free to sample from the smorgasbord of gods that we have in the roman empire and you know, put, even put that together in a combo that works for you we could almost you know, call it a, you know and today like a build a bear theology assemble the deity that makes you feel good. That was really kind of the way that the Roman Roman Empire approached the, the worship of God. So the culture of Colossae had infiltrated the church, and so the believers in Jesus had a lot of their rituals that they added to their faith, they thought, in a way to produce peace and prosperity. They thought, oh, we can just take some of this and some of that and add it to what we've learned about Christianity and kind of make our own God and so that's what Paul is dealing with that's the culture that he is writing this book and he's trying to explain to them no there's one God there is a Jesus who is God who came to this earth died upon a cross for your sins It's not like what the Roman culture has told you for centuries. There's not a multitude of gods that you go to for different aspects of your life. There's one God and his son, Jesus. So we'll start reading here in verse 15, and he's building this theology of who Jesus Christ is. He says to them, Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So what does it mean when you say that all things were created by him and for him? What does what is Paul trying to say there in, in verse 16 with that phrase? You know, the only uncreated thing in this universe is God. God is the only uncreated thing. And if everything that was created was by Jesus, and Jesus himself, Paul's using some logic here, was created, then Jesus would have to have created himself, which is impossible. We know, the Bible doesn't say that. So the fact that Jesus created everything... That everything created means that Jesus himself was uncreated, which means that he is God. And that's a lot to think about. Do you guys grasp all of that? If Jesus created everything, if everything in this world was created by Jesus, that means that he was not created, and it means that he was God. It means that Jesus was truly the Son of God. Hopefully you're following me now. I know that was a lot to capture there. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to build the thought in their mind that Jesus was not just a good man. He's not just another of the gods. He is actually God. That's where he's going. I hope you can follow that. That word firstborn, sometimes it throws people off. Because they assume it means that Jesus was the first thing that God created. And sometimes you're, you're different, you know, I would call them cults because they have a misconception of who Jesus truly is. They'll use this verse to say, see, Jesus is not truly God because he was created. You know, it's, um, it's, it's kind of like thinking, like, Callie is my firstborn. I mean that that she was the first human that Rachel and I had a part in creating. In 2004, there was no Callie. but in 2005, she existed. But that firstborn can mean position. When we get to the word, we get the word really that the same word prototype comes from the same word here in this verse. Jesus is. Think about it as the prototype of creation. The template on which all things were created, and the one for whom all things were created. That's the better way of thinking about this verse. In a couple of verses, Paul will say that Jesus was also the firstborn of the dead. Technically, others had been raised from the dead before Jesus, but Jesus is called the firstborn of resurrection because he is the prototype of the resurrection, the pattern by which the rest of believers will follow. Whenever Jesus, whenever God calls us home to heaven, it's the prototype that will follow. Whenever we make that decision to follow Christ, He is the firstborn. It's the position aspect of it. I hope you're you're following me here. So you know we have a lot. Like your Muslims, your Mormons, your Jehovah's Witnesses, and a lot of others teach that. Jesus was a great man, a great moral teacher, but they react strongly, sometimes even violently, when you use the term, Jesus is God. When you make that leap to say that he was not just a good man, that his teachings are not just good, but that he is actually God, If you make that in a Muslim country, you'll find yourself probably in the same position that Paul found himself back in the first century. Because there is something inherently threatening by saying Jesus is divine. If Jesus is a created being, even a super strong, super wise one, then you can look at him as a dispenser of good moral advice that you can put alongside other great religious teachers. But if he's God, then the rules all together are different. It means that he is the center of everything and everything is measured by him. So Paul's trying to lay these believers straight here saying, You've allowed this creep into the church of thinking that Jesus was just another God that you see or another God that you all have worshipped or been t- taught to worship. No, that's not who Jesus is. He is the only God. He said in the straight here, we were created by Jesus for Jesus. That is why we exist, for his glory. Which means my primary purpose is to know, discover his will, live it out, and we will only find fulfillment when we do that. All right, I know that's a lot for us here, but I'm trying to get the, the groundwork here, and I hope you're following me here, because Paul's great in his writing, but sometimes we got to dig deep to figure out where he's going in his cultural context. Verse 17, making peace by the blood of the cross. Man, Paul gives them the gospel message here in this. He tells them that God holds everything together. He is the creator of everything, the template on which it was made. And the one for whom it was made was Jesus. Jesus was all of that. The point is that Jesus is not one of many beautiful things God has created, but Jesus is the creating force and he is the purpose behind them all, all of it. And he's also saying this God, Jesus, pursued a relationship with us when we weren't even looking for him. He said, making peace by the blood of the cross. He was died upon a cross to satisfy our sin debt to help us make peace with God he experienced torture humiliation so he could buy us back voluntarily you know you think about in any other story would this make sense there's no other God that these these people in Colossae had even come close to this amazing story of redemption Paul's telling us, our God, Jesus, was searching for you when you had no desire to look for him. That's how amazing our God is. Paul's telling them, in other words, we should put Jesus first in our life. He says that in everything that he might be preeminent that he might be preeminent, or is our our title of our, our series, that he might be supreme in our life. Every aspect of our life. He's not just an important chapter in the story. He is the book in which all other chapters are written. He exists in a class all by himself you know what paul would probably say to them is you had the pantheon you know the 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 ancient pantheon i don't know if anyone's ever been to italy and seen that that's a goal of mine one day to go the pantheon was was built um, about 127 by emperor hadrian and it is one of the most well-preserved buildings in all of ancient history uh, in the 600s, the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church took over the building, um, and they have kept it in pristine condition since that time. But for about the first 500 years of the existence of the Pantheon, it's said that the Romans used that as a place to keep their gods. And they would have kind of these mini Pantheons, and there are different settlements across the Roman Empire. So you would walk into the Pantheon, and you would have sculptures or statues of the different gods that the Romans worship. So as you walked into the Pantheon, you had your smorgasbord of gods, whatever gods you wanted to worship at that particular moment. You could walk into that house of worship and worship that Pantheon. And what Paul is telling the Romans here is God doesn't belong in a Pantheon. Jesus is not a part of that. Jesus is the God in heaven that cannot be held by temples made by man. Jesus is not someone that you put on a list of priorities. He is the page on which all other priorities are written. He is in a class all by himself. You are created by him and for him that means he can never be merely an important commitment in your life he must be first that this word preeminent that we read in here that means he is the foundation he is the center of everything so here's my question for you in this season does Jesus hold that position in your life or is he just simply On your list? Is he just simply on your list or is he preeminent? In other words, is he just important to you or is he first? First versus important. You know, as I was thinking through this, I saw an author write this about this chapter. If he's first, you do whatever it takes. If he's just important, You does only what I'm asked to do. If if God, if Jesus is first, you assume a personal responsibility. Seek reconciliation and forgiveness. If he's merely just important, you assume someone else will do it. If he's first, you expect personal sacrifice. If he's just merely important, you expect personal comfort. If he's first, you see problems and seek solutions. If he's just merely important, you see problems and complain. If Jesus is first, you see possibilities and dreams about what could be if Jesus had a greater stronghold on your life. If he's just merely important, when trials come, you see barriers and reasons to quit. If he's first, you step out with bold and a reckless trust in God. If he's just important you sit satisfied in the stability of the institution. If he's first, you fear holding back anything from God because you understand that he is preeminent. But if he's just merely important, then you fear commitment. If he's first, you feel privileged to be a part of the movement. You're humbled to think that God loved you so much that he sought you out and that the God of the universe craves our worship. Just, just allow your, your mind and your heart to try to get around that thought for a moment, that God wants you to worship him. Man, there's some days that I just can't, can't even get past that thought. That humbles me. But if God is just not first, but on important, you have a feeling of entitlement to the benefits of the institution. You know, I believe this idea of us as a church making God first in every aspect of our lives is a matter of life and death for our church, and for our families, no church can flourish and grow if God is not first in their lives. There is no there, there are so many people in every sphere of your life and my life that we need to reach. New families, another generation of children, a whole new generation of students going into college that need to be reached with the saving grace, and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me conclude with just a few questions this morning to get your mind thinking through this idea of a supreme life as we build on what Paul is saying to the church here. Question number one, what gets my first and best? What gets my first and best? Remember, Paul says he should have the first place in everything preeminent place that means he should have the first place in your heart and your affections he should be the one that you love the most more than anything first place in your obedience what he wants should be the the first consideration in anything you do first place in your priorities that should express itself in many areas but i'll give you just a few here First place in your priorities, does God get the first and best of your time? Does he get the first and best of your time? I think the first place you can start is, is this time of worship on Sunday morning, is it rock solid on your calendar? Nothing else should take the place of our worship of God. And then throughout the week, is there a time... That you are digging into God's word and saying, this is non-negotiable for me in my growth. Does God get the first of your time? Do you spend more time worrying about climbing the ladder at work than you do seeking Jesus? Of all of your weekly commitments, are your commitments to the kingdom of God, to connection groups, to worshiping him on Sunday morning, volunteer, volunteering at church, are these Things The first thing to go whenever you have a conflict with other areas of your life. So does God get the first and best of your time? Next, when you think about your talent and career, does the kingdom of God get the first consideration? There are so many of you in here that have talents that God could use for his kingdom and for his glory. God has uniquely equipped every single Person in this room for us c- combined together to reach this community for Christ. God gave you a talent for a reason. Many of you have talents that serve here on Sunday mornings. Your workplace is also a mission field. You should see the job, your neighborhood, as a place to connect with people, to tell them about the love of Christ in this great community of believers that we have here at Bethel. Don't be ashamed or afraid to tell them because more than likely they're looking for exactly what you have and they're just waiting for someone to tell them. Right. Third, where is your treasure? Who or what gets the first and best of your tre- of your treasures? Think of it what you do with your money in two categories, first and best category and a good enough category. Some things you really want and strive for best in, and sometimes you're willing to live with, eh, that's good enough just to get by. When it comes to what God has given to you. So hear me, there's nothing wrong with putting some things first in your family, but the question we rarely ask is the question in light of our giving. We never seem to have the conversation, we can do this in our giving. But some things are going to have to change and we do. Instead we ask, how much can we afford to give after all of these other commitments are fulfilled? You see the difference in the question? The one question is, I'm gonna give and I'm gonna adjust the rest of my lifestyle around what God wants me to give. The other question is, I'm gonna live my lifestyle, then what do I have to give after I live the lifestyle I want to give. God does not deserve our leftovers. He is supreme. He is first in everything. Have you ever been to someone's house for dinner? They invited you over and they served leftovers from the day before, like some heated up mashed potatoes, some like some soggy fries. And, you know, you think, oh, man, I kind of feel kind of feel like slighted here. Why would, you, why would you give me this? You know, some leftover bacon from the morning? Yeah, that turned soggy. Yeah, it's bacon, so I'd still probably eat it. But um, you'd still feel like, oh,, you know, what's going on here? How would that make you feel? You'd feel insulted, wouldn't you? Because you'd realize this meal was actually prepared for somebody else. It wasn't prepared for me at all. Jesus does not deserve your leftovers. He is first. He went first, and he should be first in our lives. And let me be clear, I want you to ask before God, what is the level of giving in my life that declares unequivocally, Jesus is first in my life. He is preeminent. I want something that says, I want my kids to see that because I want them to see that Jesus is not just important to us, but he is first. The conversation I had with my kids, we were sitting at Culver's a few weeks ago, and we were telling them, we were talking about things, vacations and things that we wanted to do, and we said, you know what, mommy and daddy could live a completely different lifestyle, but we choose not to, because we choose to make Jesus first in our life. This is what we want to do for Jesus, and after that, we adjust our lifestyle accordingly. You know, I, I've used this analogy before and years ago, years before. When you sit down to a, a breakfast of bacon and eggs, how many guys like bacon and eggs for breakfast? Yeah, we all do. Both the chicken and the egg had a part in your breakfast, didn't they? The chicken made a contribution, but the pig, the pig went all in. The pig went all in on breakfast. The chicken is not really changed for the experience. For the chicken, it's more of a transaction that took place. The pig, however, the pig has fundamentally changed (laughs) from that experience. I don't want us, I don't want my family to simply be the chickens in our giving. We want to be the pigs. We don't want to merely make a generous contribution. We want to be fundamentally changed for the experience because we established God as the unchallenged first and best in our lives. So I believe that the life, the future of our church depends on we as a church in every aspect of our life asking this question Is Jesus first? Is He preeminent? So I want us to think about this next week, of all of our priorities and all of our commitments. What is, look at your biggest commitment and say, how can I make Jesus most important? When you sit down with your family at supper, is it sitting down and all of you sitting on your phones while you eat, or is it you sitting around talking about your day, what God has done. When's the last time we had a time of reading God's word and praying together as a family, making him preeminent in our church, making him preeminent in our families? So I ask this question, a question that Paul was asking the church at Colossae. He's telling them, no, God's just not one of those other gods in the pantheon. God is, as he said, Jesus is the creator of the universe. He is first. He is preeminent. And he needs to be preeminent in our lives. Let's pray.